0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Neoadjuvant, Adjuvant, or Both. How to solve the puzzle of perioperative immunotherapy, Individualized treatment plans, and improve cure rates in resectable non-small cell lung cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash sqn860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: All right. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to LA, California. We've been uh, doing this series now for um, a little over a year, and uh, I'm more excited than I've ever been to be sharing the stage with uh, Dr. Ugalde and Dr. Najme, who are really uh, brilliant surgeons and um, Try and give you uh, some new perspectives, uh, different views on on, um, on this evolving space. We're going to get right to it because uh, we have a ton of stuff to cover and we want to give some time for you guys to get in on some questions. So as I said, I'm very lucky to share uh, this opportunity with Dr. Uh, Paulo Galde, who's the associate professor of thoracic surgery at Brigham and Women's uh, at Harvard Medical School, uh, internationally recognized for her uh, her role in developing minimally invasive surgery and, and a leading a leading voice in the domain, and um, my colleague, Dr. Sarah Nashmi who's an assistant pro- professor uh, back home where, where I work as well at McGill University, who's now three years out of practice, and um, I, I'm proud to say is probably operate on more patients after chemoimmunotherapy than most people in the room here. So she actually brings a wealth of experience despite her uh, her I guess junior status. So it's, I, I want to. I wanted to showcase what she's been doing. So educational uh, goals today is really to, to bring, keep everyone up to date on the evolving evidence f- around the use of immunotherapy for patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer and really focus on some of the skills that might be required to treat these patients and some of the concepts we need to keep in mind to do a good job for our patients. What's the data? So I'm going to try and blast through this next six minutes to give time to our cases. We have a few FDA approvals for the use of immunotherapy in the perioperative setting. The first one that came to light was uh, Empower 010 for patients with PD-L1 greater than 1%. Um, Without spending too much time on the data, you can see here that there was clear benefit with the addition of atezolizumab versus best supportive care in in patients with stage 2 and 3A disease, but that there's a gradient of of improvement in outcome uh, as PD-L1 goes up. Um, In terms of the OS, it's um, a little bit immature still if you just take that greater than 1% group. As you know, adjuvant studies take quite a while to mature with uh, these patients being already selected to be good performers based on the selection criteria, but Although the approval here in the U.S. is for greater than 1%, Canada and most places in the rest of the world, including Europe, have only approved it for 50% and greater. And so I think this is quite important in terms of counseling patients after surgery and uh, and guiding them with what their options are before they go on to see the medical oncologist. The other FDA approval, which is more recent, is uh, from Keynote 091, the PEARL study. Very similar study. This one was placebo-controlled. Um, Comparing pembrolizumab for a year after surgery versus placebo. And the approval is based on this curve, which was the uh, DFS in the overall population. And this was positive with a hazard ratio of 0.76. If you think back to the years of the adjuvant chemo studies, it's very similar hazard ratios as what led to the approval for chemo. Um, but this is now coming to add over and above that. One of the important subgroups that did not benefit uh, are the patients who did not get any chemo. And the recent approval in Canada is only for patients who get uh, at least one cycle of platinum doublet in the adjuvant setting, though that's not the case here in the U.S. Um, the other uh, primary endpoint was in patients with pdl one greater than 50%. And this did not reach its, uh, its um uh, Endpoint uh, is uh, negative, and there have been a lot of discussions as to why that is. It's counterintuitive based on what we know of the metastatic setting. The best explanation I've heard is that the placebo controlled patients actually overperform based on what the historical controls were, um, leading to this study being perhaps underpowered, maybe just immature, and so we will see over time whether this subgroup actually at some point derives benefit. We have two other studies that are. Uh, in progress and for which we should have results soon, the ANVIL study, uh, looking at adjuvant nivolumab, same, very similar design to Empower 10 and, and PEARLS, and the BR31 uh, trial read, led by the CCTG group, which I believe will have results very soon uh, using drivalumab in the adjuvant setting. Now, when we have patients who have uh, less than 50% percent pdl one in the metastatic setting, we do not give them monotherapy that is not what we do what we do is we offer them concurrent chemoimmunotherapy and so there's uh, two important trials looking at whether adjuvant chemoimmunotherapy given concurrently can actually do better than sequential chemo followed by uh, immunotherapy. This is the Spanish trial. It's a phase three trial that's uh, completed its accrual. Uh, Dr. Provencio, who's led this study, is, tells me that they're expecting results in uh, early January so keep of 2024, so keep your eyes out open for this one. Um, and the uh, American-led study ALCHEMIST uh, ACCIO trial, which is comparing platinum doublet uh, and observation to platinum doublet plus pembrolizumab for a year Versus pem, uh, platinum doublet, where cycles one and three are given concurrently with pembrolizumab, followed by pembrolizumab. So really trying to dissect that question, whether concurrent administration of immunotherapy brings benefit or not uh, in the adjuvant setting. And uh, I believe this, this is led by Dr. Sands, um, and we should have results sometime in the next couple of years. You can see the OS results from Keynote 091. I like neoadjuvant studies. And the other reason I like neoadjuvant studies is that adjuvant studies do nothing for all of these events that occur in the first six months or so after surgery. The only thing you can do to improve on this is maybe do better staging. Um, but then we know that even when you do better staging, there's patients with micrometastatic disease, and so the only way to deal with that is to give preoperative systemic therapy, and we have an approval for that, which is uh, the, you know, uh, the sorry the CheckMate eight one six study for patients with tumors greater than four centimeters or, and or uh, ipsilateral positive lymph nodes that was approved last year. In the spring, now we have the three years three year results for the trial. You can see a sustained benefit in terms of EFs starting right at the beginning um, with fifty seven percent EFs at three years that's a fourteen percent improvement upon the um, uh, chemo controlled arm and uh, basically a whole year of extra EFs in those patients who got. Uh, those three doses of immunotherapy. This is time to death or distant metastasis. You can see a 20% benefit, uh, 21% benefit on that at uh, three years, which is very encouraging for such a small amount of drug. And uh, the OS results, which are uh, strongly encouraging and trending towards positivity. So on to the cases now. Dr. Galdi.
2: Thank you, John. Thank you, thank you for the invite. Thank you to Peerview for the invite. So we're going to jump right away into our um, first case. So this is a forty four year old uh, female patient, heavy smoker. She was asymptomatic when we saw her, and she had an incidental finding of her left upper lobe mass due to chest pain, no comorbidities, excellent lung function, and as you can see in both. Scans. this patient had a left upper lobe mass with important um, mediastinal lymph node metastasis that was described as bulky disease in the AP window. She went ahead and uh, had a PET scan that, again, positive at the mass and very positive in the mediastinum AP window and also paratracheal station 4L, this is just to highlight the tumor and the mediastinal disease. To complete the clinical staging, the patient underwent an EBUS that was positive in the station 4L, and she also underwent a transthoracic needle biopsy, which confirmed that she had a adenocarcinoma. We ordered molecular analysis, and she was negative on all of them. This case was discussed with the Donna Farber uh, medical oncologist. We offered neoadjuvant treatment. She underwent uh, restaging with imaging. You can see in the CT scans that there was a response in size for the tumor and a significant response in the mediastinum with a decrease in size of that um, lymph nodes in the AP window. And the PET scan just highlights that all the lymph nodes now are negative. and the tumor had a partial response. So again, just to highlight pre and post imaging. So, you know, I personally don't address uh, lymph node station 4L through the chest. I know there are some surgeons that are able to do that. I am not to do to, uh, assess that lymph node. We went ahead and performed a video mediastinoscopy. We started biopsying station 2L uh, we sent that lymph node for frozen. We took a couple of those lymph nodes in station two. Th- those lymph nodes were uh, much more mobile and free of adhesions. And then we started the dissection. In station four L, that was really, as you can see, stuck to the left main bronchus. Uh, you see a surgeon cell there because station seven had been removed already. So, you know, we we had to do kind of a dissection right there to really access uh, those lymph nodes. I would have not gone to the chest without at least getting some kind of sampling of that area, at least. I must say that uh, this patient was consented with 100% of coming out of this procedure horse. She knew that that was the price um, to undergo this procedure. So finally, we were able to find those lymph nodes in station 4L. To actually remove the
1: nodes Yeah sample. So well, just for the online audience, uh, we have a question whether this the goal here is to remove the whole um, lymph node or just to sample them.
2: Well, my initial objective was to remove try to remove them. That's what what I do when I perform VAMLIS, but I would be happy just to be able to, you know um, get good sampling. And we were able, as I was digging into that four l you know space, um, we were able really to, to get good, you know, specimen.
1: Uh, question for you. W- would you have aborted if they were still
0: positive?
2: I think that I think that, that information would have been important for me. Um, with a 2L negative and a 4L positive, we, by definition we would have been able to achieve a complete resection, an R0. So I would have gone ahead, but I wouldn't have done the procedure without knowing that, that answer. So here now we're in the plural space, and we're uh, performing the same kind of uh, lymph node dissection in the AP window. And as you can see, very bulky, thick, uh, a lot of fibrosis. During this part of the dissection, we're trying to protect the phrenic nerve, which is right there, and that's why I stopped using the uh, energy device. So it's it's going to be a little bit more uh, bloody, but very stuck very thick, and, uh, you know, just doing our best to protect those nerves.
1: How long after uh, completion of chemoimmunotherapy? Six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah.
2: And uh, as we were removing the lymph nodes, we were sending everything to PATH, and every single lymph node was coming negative. So stations um, five and six were dissected.
1: That's really nice.
2: Yeah, we were able to visualize both phrenic and vagus nerve and, uh, you know, again.
1: I also noticed that uh, your dissection was only on the left side when you're doing the mucinoscopy. Is, is that because of concerns around the recurrence? And-
2: yeah, I have a lot of concerns. So we've we've now have some experience using VAMLA for post-operative post-new uh, adjuvant uh, patients. And when you open that device and you stretch everything in the mediastinum, I, I believe that you can harm the nerves. So <laughs> it's kind of shocking. Uh, post-operative, uh, the patient did extremely well. She was not hoarse at all, which just tells me that probably I left some lymph nodes. And she went home this post-operative day one, actually. This is final pathology. What's interesting here is that uh, if you see uh, tumor effect, uh, viable tumor, 30%, and then all the lymph nodes, all the 19 lymph nodes that were removed during this procedure was negative. So the final pathology was T2B by size and zero.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Kali. Um Dr. Najme, you're up next with a few more cases.
3: All right, so uh, good afternoon, everyone, and um, thank you, uh, Dr. Spicer, for the kind introduction and, and peer view for uh, the invitation to participate in, in this session. Um, as John was saying, I was uh, invited to share some of my uh, experiences as an early career thoracic surgeon. Uh, dealing with periadjuvant immunotherapy uh, in the care of uh, patients with uh, operable non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, I think this is a very exciting time to be um, practicing thoracic surgery. As uh, as Dr. Spicer um, uh, showed us, there's really unprecedented improvements in, in oncological outcomes, especially for patients with stage 2 and stage 3 disease. Um, and the two cases that I will present uh, just illustrate some of the clinical scenarios that we're now enc- encountering as we're operating on more and more patients who, uh, who undergo these uh, uh, preoperative uh, therapies. Um, so the first case that I'd like to present is uh, that of a 70-year-old female uh, ex-40-pack-year smoker. Um, Just known for dyslipidemia and GERD, um, she was found to have a three centimeter left upper lobe speculated mass with pleural retraction, as you can see on the scan, um, as well as some uh, ipsilateral hyalur adenopathy. You can see them right here on the scan, really kind of around the truncus equivalent branch of the pulmonary artery and really really surrounding that left upper lobe bronchus. A PET scan was uh, performed, and you can see some of the fused imaging on the right which showed uh, increased FDG uptake in the left upper lobe mass as well as significant uptake in the uh, left hilar lymph nodes an mri brain was done for uh, completion of the staging and was negative and an ebus was performed at that point and biopsy of the uh, left hilar nodes revealed non small cell lung ca- carcinoma lung cancer sorry fav- favoring adenocarcinoma with a pdl1 of 30% and an ngs showed a, D- a KRAS g12c mutation So um, we presented this case at our our, uh, multidisciplinary tumor board, and the recommendation was to proceed with neoadjuvant chemo IO. This was right after the uh, Checkmate 816 uh, trial was published, and we were all very excited about that, so we thought this would be a a great patient uh, for this uh, treatment strategy. So the patient underwent three cycles of neoadjuvant uh, chemo uh, NEVO, and you can see uh, the post-treatment imaging on the on the right-hand side. Um, So as you can see on the CT scan, there's significant uh, response in the primary tumor itself as well as in the left hilar lymph nodes. So um, we perform the uh, VATS left upper lobectomy and mediastinal lymph node dissection. As you all know, many ways to do this. Um, I I do the, uh, by um, uh, two incisions, basically one axis incision and another uh, 12 millimeter incision for the camera. Around the eighth intercostal space, um, and we do uh, we extract the specimen from the axis incision up there. Um, surgery was uncomplicated. Um, it was a little bit challenging uh, working around the bronchus, um, which we've noticed kind of from our experience dealing with with these patients, which also reflects the experience of the MD Anderson group that was recently published. A, a good response in Hyler nodes after chemu- chemoimmunotherapy is is uh, truly one of the what, what makes these surgeries often very uh, challenging, and this is what we've been seeing in practice as well. But despite that, everything uh, went well and the patient was uh, discharged post-op uh, day two. The operative uh, pathology showed no residual tumor in the primary, however, there was a persistent tumor in level 10L uh, uh, with no, uh, no sign of regression whatsoever or no sign of response to, uh, to the therapy. The other uh, hyalur nodes were negative, and all the mediastinal lymph nodes were were negative. So uh, that's consistent with a YPT0N1, uh, consistent with a major pathological response. Uh, So just to remind everyone, pathological response has to be in both the primary tumor and the lymph nodes. So even if you have no tumor left in your primary, we can't uh, really call this a complete response, as there's residual disease in in the nodes. So um, the reason why I I wanted to... um, highlights this case is, is there is a uh, discrepant uh, response in the primary tumor uh, compared to the to the hyalur nose. With, in this case, uh, a very nice, uh, you know, we started with a three, three centimeter mass in the left upper lobe and there was nothing left on the pathology. However, there was no response whatsoever in those hyalur uh, lymph nodes. And we've been seeing this more and more in patients who are undergoing chemo IO, uh, and why that is and how we can improve on that is, is I think, something that, that's still um, unclear. Um, and the implication of, of that phenomenon on future recurrence and, and long-term survival is, 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 I think, something to look at and, and to watch for later on. Um, so I'll move on to, uh, to the next case. Uh, so this is quite different. This is a case of a 78-year-old male, uh, ex-40-pack-year smoker, who uh, presented, who uh, is known for hypertension, dyslipidemia, and a history of infective endocarditis in 2014, for which he underwent uh, bio-AVR and MVR. He presented to uh, the emergency room with mild hemoptysis and a CT scan, as you can see here shows a 4.7-centimeter left lower lobe mass with endobronchial extension and complete atelectasis of the left lower lobe. Uh, PET scan was performed and uh, showed increased FDG uptake in the left lower mass, as you can see here, no obvious adenopathy in the hilum or the mediastinum. And uh, brain imaging was also performed at that point and showed uh, uh, no evidence of brain metastasis. His pulmonary function tests were acceptable with... uh, uh, FEV1 and DLCO uh, between 60 and 70 percent. So the patient underwent bronchoscopy and endobronchial ultrasound, and a biopsy of the left lower lobe mass showed uh, non-small cell lung cancer favoring squamous cell carcinoma. The PDL1 was around 20 percent, and uh, lymph nodes 4, and 4L and 7 were biopsied and were found to be negative. So uh, we discussed, again, this case at our multidisciplinary tumor board, um, and the recommendation was to uh, start with neoadjuvant chemo-IO and then offer him surgery. Uh, He completed one cycle of chemo-IO. However, he presented to an outside hospital with uh, severe scrotal cellulitis and bacteremia. And during that same admission uh, that he had for antibiotic therapy, he developed kind of ongoing mild hemoptysis. Repeat CT scan was done at that time and showed st- relatively stable left lower lobe mass by bi- bilateral ground glass opacities, as you can see here, which were thought to be most likely uh, due to either aspiration or, or the ongoing hemoptysis that he had. Um, so, we discussed, uh, so we discussed this case again um, at our meeting, and we decided uh, to, to go ahead and, and take him to the OR for resection as we did not feel like he would tolerate more uh, neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, intraoperative bronchoscopy showed an exophytic mass really protruding from the left lower lobe bronchus uh, right at the secondary carina. The left upper lobe bronchus itself appeared to be patent and and free of disease. Um, So uh, I really felt like this patient might need a a sleeve resection at at the time. So um, we did a left thoracotomy for him, left lower lobectomy and a bronchial sleeve resection and mediastinal lymph node dissection. Operative pathology showed a 4.2-centimeter invasive squamous cell carcinoma. Margins were negative, and there was a level 12 L lymph node in the specimen that was also positive. The other nodes, uh, including mediastinal lymph nodes, were negative. So IPT2BN1, uh, note that there was no response whatsoever to the uh, one cycle of uh, chemoimmunotherapy uh, in the uh, in this specimen on on final path, the patient ended up doing okay. He was discharged on post op day seven. Um, he was seen by the oncologist post op to discuss adjuvant therapy, um, and uh, he actually refused to to have any because of his um, you know uh, new adjuvant experience. And despite that, he actually um, so far is doing okay. I recently saw him in my clinic a couple of weeks ago, uh, one year post op and He's doing fine with no evidence of uh, of disease on his surveillance uh, CT scan. And the main reason I wanted to uh, to present that case and maybe pick your minds at this is that bronchial obstruction can be seen in up to a third of non-small cell lung cancer cases and obstructive pneumonia and atelectasis has been shown to be associated with decrease both overall and disease-free survival when we compare patients with same size, same stage tumors uh, without evidence of bronchial obstruction. And the use of neoadjuvant systemic therapies in the context of, of endobronchial obstructive lesions has not been really uh, studied. Uh, so we started uh, looking at that with some of our fellows, who I see here. and, and uh, we. We're hoping to publish this data soon, but our retrospective data show that there's definitely an increased uh, risk of overall complication as well as a significantly increased risk of pulmonary complications in patients with obstructive tumors of the main airways uh, who undergo neoadjuvant therapy. And maybe as we're operating on more and more stage 2, stage 3 patients, this is something to really consider and to look at. And and, uh, now that we're getting... um, uh, immunotherapy accepted and approved in kind of the adjuvant setting maybe this is something we should we should take into consideration when treating these patients
1: um, that, that was great um, one of the questions that came into the uh, chat here is uh, whether there's any point in offering the patient interventional bronchoscopy to open up the airway prior to initiating is that something you've done or considered
3: i think it's it's something we've done you know for main airway obstruction um you know like right upper lobe tumors obstructing the whole right main stem bronchus and you see the whole right lung down we've done that in 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 these cases i think in a case like this where you have a bulky mass in the left lower lobe i don't really see a point uh, of of really doing that i mean if you're really trying to give this patient neoadjuvant adjuvant treatment at all cost, um, I can see how this would be tempting. But in this case, I, I don't believe there would be much much advantage to that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. I, it was a pretty striking complication from the preoperative treatment. Um, do you remember why this patient declined getting adjuvant therapy? Well,
3: he's a man. Uh, he's Canadian. <laughs> it's very very stressful for he's, him. He's Canadian. Yeah,
1: it, yes. Two, two factor, It was multifactorial. But. Uh,
3: but yeah, the the patient, you know, wasn't the the fittest patient to start with, and I think you know after he had the complication uh, with the first cycle. He had to be hospitalized for a couple of weeks with a the, with the hemoptysis, and, and he just didn't tolerate the, the treatment well, so he was very reticent to accept adjuvant.
2: When you do new adjuvant, mm-hmm. do you stage CT, PET, brain, prior, and post, or do post, you change a little bit? How do you do it?
3: We don't. Again, we're in Canada, so... Uh, <laughs> Resources are, are, are scarce. Uh, we usually don't, unless you know it's a patient who's on trial, or, or unless it's an EGFR patient. So patients without an EGFR mutation usually will get the CT, PET, and brain imaging, uh, plus anything else that might be indicated uh, with those results. And then they get the uh, neoadjuvant treatment, and then we usually do just restaging CT scans. Unless there's signs of progression on the restaging CT scan, we might proceed with, you know, PET and repeat mediastinal staging. But otherwise, we don't. In the EGFR patients, we do, and we're more and more uh, repeating uh, brain imaging post-treatment, as we know that that uh, a lot of these patients do progress uh, in the brain.
1: Dr. Galde, uh, you had a question. Uh, yeah, I no, I was just, I was know, just going to say do? that
2: when, when we, you know, we bring the data from science to practice right checkmate did everything before everything after and then surgery right so we, you know and we see a lot of shifts when you bring that to real life I think that in our institution we aim to do PET CT scan I would say brain is probably the one that you know sometimes is not done but we have seen in the tumor board cases that you know are going to surgery just with the CT scan I personally do try to do everything
3: yeah I guess the real question is, what is the incidence of, like, how many times you do a PET and you see progression of the disease that, that we did not see on CT scan? It's definitely an interesting topic that I think is, is worth uh, looking at.
1: We'll take questions just at the end. I have a few more slides to go over. But this issue of restaging is important, and we'll be presenting some stuff at ASCO uh, that might help around that it's about 3 or 4% of patients who will have distant progression that will justify the PET. So you have to do a lot of PETs to find a few patients that, and those patients are oligometastatic, so really, does it really change your decision making? I'm not sure. Um, okay, so uh, this was perfect to kind of come into some of the more recent data, and we'll, I'll do this quickly again so that we can get to your questions, because I think it's always the discussion that's most enlightening. You can see that preoperative chemo nivolumab dramatically reduced the re- distant recurrence rate from 22% to 10 and In fact, most of this was mediated by diminished brain recurrences, where you have 13% in the chemo cohort versus 4%. So tumor kill in the primary and lymph node is effectively being translated uh, with diminished distant micrometastasis, which is, I think, why we're curing more patients by this approach. But we're not really accomplishing a whole a whole lot at the local regional level, which is a bit surprising. 22% local regional recurrence in the chemo-treated versus 19%. We have a lot of um, intrathoracic uh, lymph node recurrences and and a few uh, lung and pleural. So the only thing we can do, in my humble opinion, is 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 do complete node dissections and and perhaps that's an important part of it. It was not. Mandated in checkmate u16, it was recommended. I'm not going to go through all of the data by region, but North America did not perform particularly well in terms of uh, doing, um, in terms of getting R0 resections. And part of that goes to what Dr. Galde was talking about, which is getting that highest lymph node and assuring that it's negative. Because by uh, ISLC criteria, that's an R plus resection if your if your highest lymph node. Whether that that is, you know, truly R0 or not, it certainly corroborates worse prognosis. So I think we have to do due diligence and make a good effort to do complete node dissections. We have the Neotorch study that just, just came out. This is a Chinese study with giving three doses of toripalimab, a, a checkpoint inhibitor with chemotherapy versus placebo plus chemotherapy, three cycles plus a fourth that can be given in the adjuvant setting, and then maintenance thereafter. This study... Um, is a phase three study recruiting about 400 or so patients. There was a benefit in terms of PCR that was comparable to what we've seen with other similarly designed studies, as well as a very significant EFS benefit, so confirming that this design of uh, peri is at least comparable to what Checkmate 816 demonstrated the aging uh, data, but it's essentially identical in terms of uh, the EFS benefit that was seen. The um, surgical outcomes, though, uh, bring us some questions. Uh, R0 resection rates are not where we'd like them to be. We have R0 resection rates uh, at Checkmate 816 that are around 83%. Um, AGN, however, and Neotorch were much better in the mid 90s. Uh, so was this because the uh, selection of patients was a little bit more stringent? Certainly, AGN uh, um, did not allow for patients who might need a pneumonectomy at uh, at entry. So that will certainly improve your your uh, your complete resection rate. Uh, but there are issues with progress to surgery. In Aegean, it was some, somewhere around 20% of patients who didn't, didn't go on to surgery, which is similar to Checkmate A16, and also similar findings in Neotorch. Now, there are a lot of differences, cross-trial comparisons uh, are, are never the greatest, but if you look at Checkmate A16, Nadeem 2, Aegean, and Neotorch, which are the randomized studies we have, Nadeem 2, the exception being a, a phase 2, all the three others being phase 3, look at the EFS at two years. There are differences in stage. There's slightly differences, some important differences in the therapy. Checkmate A16 was only three do- dose of immunotherapy, but we've already... Hit a plateau we've only been doing this for a few years and and kind of like with chemo rads and surgery or chemo and surgery where we hit a plateau about 15 years ago in terms of the outcomes with those modalities we seem to be hitting a plateau here and it's really unclear what the added benefit of that extra year of post-operative treatment is although it will become an option for us and might already be so here in the u.s with keynote 671 having announced its um, um, it's positivity by press release, the results of which will be reported at ASCO. There are a couple other studies, in POWER O3O, uh, BMS 77T, and um, another Asian study uh, comparing um, tisluizumab with uh, a platinum doublet that will be uh, showing results in the coming future. Go ahead, please. Thank you. Great
3: job, all three of you on presentation. John Howington, Bremerton, Washington. So let's Look at you know in the U.S. You mentioned that much more liberal um, use of immunotherapy or targeted therapy and the marketing of that, and specifically talk about um, Checkmate and the others in the uh, stage 2A, but what not they're saying stage 1B because it was the seventh edition, and talk about the confidence interval and in the truly node-negative patients that had a 4.2 centimeter tumor and. And what's our evidence that we need to be doing that in a 4.2 centimeter
1: tumor? Thank you. So maybe, Paula, what are you guys doing? Are you treating those patients? I mean, you're treating them, but are you giving them preoperative treatment?
2: I think at this point is very much driven by the surgeon that sees the patient and the oncologist. I don't think that we have... Scott Swanson is putting a lot of effort to try to, you know, we're 20-plus thoracic surgeons at the Brigham, which is a huge machine. <laughs> I, I think it would be a dream to kind of at least have 80% of us doing kind of the same thing. So I think at this moment, realistically, everyone is doing what they think is better. I think it, it has to do also with the type of resection, like an easy right upper lobectomy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's appealing to take the patient to the OR. And also, you do have Adjuvant uh, immunotherapy. So,
1: So I'll get to that in a second. But Sarah, what's your?
3: Yeah, I completely agree with Paula. It really depends on who sees the patient, not just which surgeon, but whether they get to you know the radiation oncologist or the medical oncologist first, and a lot of the the kind of downstream treatment often depends on that. I think for me, when I see the patient for the first time, a patient with, you know, like a 4.4 4 to 4.5 centimeter mass looks like no negative. The way I think about it is if, if let's say, I do upfront surgery and it comes out as a 4.2 centimeter tumor, it, it, what, what we can offer this patient in Canada right now is adjuvant chemo. And oftentimes when the oncologists discuss this option with the patient, they tell them, you know, the the kind of, you have five percent, you know, increase in survival, and that's, I think, a very hard sell uh, for the patient. And most patients, again, Canada is a little bit different, um, will actually not n- not end up uh, getting any adjuvant therapy. So, I kind of, um, that's one of the reasons why I, I would, I tend to be more aggressive and encourage neo-adjuvant therapy because then I know the patient uh, will get it.
1: Yeah, I think the other answer is a bit statistical, and uh, I personally wasn't really trained in, in in that formally, and I'm learning more and more about it. But when these trials are evaluated by regulatory agencies, the size of the trial in terms of whether the subgroups are can be decisional or not is is quite important. So if if you have CheckMate eight one six three hundred and sixty patients, and only a very small proportion, it's like it's basically thirty patients in each group that had a stage 2A uh, tumor, you, you, can't, you can't make decisions based on that uh, to say whether you should or shouldn't give treatment, and we don't have a, the control group of upfront surgery. The outcomes for those patients with upfront surgery are not good, there are a lot of recurrences in these people. The, the surgeons yeah. who tell me that they're cured by an operation Yeah, some are, about half are. We need a better biomarker in those patients. That's probably where we need CT DNA and things like that to have a better evaluation of whether they have micrometastatic disease. In the absence of that, I try and give them a regimen that gives them the most of all the available treatment options, which tends to be chemo and evo and surgery.
4: Yeah, thank you for the excellent presentations and nice cases. Uh, Gregor Kocher from uh, Bern, Switzerland. I have two comments or questions for you. Uh, first, uh, the case that Paulo Galde has presented. Uh, what I think is also important, I mean, you can biopsy, you can make an ebus of the station 4L. If it's negative, you don't have to resect. You don't have to put the patient at risk. If it's positive, you should remove it. And I think you should remove it to see if there's extra capsular extension of the lymph node, because then you don't have an R0 resection. A patient might need additional irradiation. So that's my my take on this. Uh, The second thing is uh, you talked about scores, uh, resources that you don't do all the all the restaging afterwards. But what's the rationale uh, of giving chemo and checkpoint inhibitor to patients with uh, smaller than one pd uh, PD-L1 expression? I mean, we know more than fifty percent of course patients should re- receive chemo and checkpoint inhibitor. Between those one and fifty percent, I think there uh, there's a lot of discussion. But in those Smaller than one percent. I don't see the, the sense now. It costs well, a lot she of money. Had and had uh, a
1: complete nodal response in her case. Yeah. In less, her case, yeah, but than there's than some
4: cases, and uh, yeah. I mean, is, is this enough uh, to to treat all the patients? Uh, it's a ir- good point, irrespective of uh, of the status. Did, did you guys not check TMB in that? Patient? Yeah, it was so very was, high. We yeah. did. So so I think
1: one of the issues is preoperative biopsies depending on where you're sampling may like we know that lymph node sampling tends to yield higher PDL1s than if you're sampling the tumor um, if you if you're in the wrong part of the tumor microenvironment you might be negative it might be positive if you're in t- so i think the assessment is is inaccurate PDL1s not a good Biomarker. If you just look at the path complete response rate in the PL1 negatives, it was about 17 percent in the chemo nevo patients versus about 4 percent in the. So I give the patient the benefit of the doubt in in that setting, and then I consider what are the alternatives for that patient. The alternative for that patient is surgery followed by chemo, because there's nothing else afterwards. Right? Can't get. Or, 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 yes, yes, absolutely. If you if you want to be really, like, uh, uh, strict about cost utilization and, and maybe... minute, But I think giving them the benefit of the doubt for the cost of those three doses of drugs is a kind of reasonable compromise. But that's sort of personal opinion. It's also... It's not supported by data yet, but it's also what we would do in the metastatic setting. So that that's kind of the, the rationale. Any, any well,
2: uh, I mean, let's not forget that the Aegean was... Irrespective of the independent of the PDL1 level. So, I mean, we're kind of moving away from the PDL1s, yeah. but uh, they should be EGFR negative. So I would yeah. say EGFR we still have to test.
1: A couple more questions and then we'll close up. Um.
5: So switching gears a little bit and uh, to a point, Jonathan, regarding uh, giving patients the benefit of the doubt. So rather than sort of quibbling about the 4.1 or 4.2, I want to focus a little bit about the case that maybe Paula showed. The 45-year-old who we all say we need to go to bat for here, you've got a 9-centimeter tumor, 3-centimeter nodes encasing every blood vessel in the chest known to man. Um, so you want to go... so. Therein is the decision making. Do we give this a chance with new adjuvant or do we go with Pacific? And um, do we lose out if we've given that patient the chance and there is no response? What are we left with? Um, and this sort of brings me back to my days not so long ago, maybe eight years ago, where. Um, our radiation oncologists, uh, we have few in the room, w- w- thought it was heresy to just give chemotherapy without radiation in the new adjuvant setting because the efficacy was was, um, was uh, better um, in a concurrent fashion. So again, um, where do we draw the line? And um, I think we I think we need better markers for response clearly, but shy of that, um, how crazy do we going to go in the preoperative <laughs> setting?
1: I'm not going to take that one. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I kind of responded to that question. My thinking process is to go through the exclusion criteria. So she doesn't fit any exclusion. She didn't have N3 disease. She was not EGFR positive. Um, this would be resected by lobectomy. We have all resect uh, 4L lymph nodes. So the t- station 2 was negative from the beginning, and then uh, during...
1: So you've got a 3.5-centimeter node... So the borderline resectable. None of these studies were for that patient, right? That's not what the evidence we have was generated to answer. We are in a position now where um, we want to do everything possible. We have this inherent belief that offering a patient a path to surgical resection will be the better option. Uh, but we don't have evidence to support that, either. I, I know you're watching me very closely, Drew. <laughs> um, but, so so I think we need trials in that space of, of the borderline patient. There are some coming forward. Um, I do think the MDT and the patient and the shared decision model is really critical there. If the patient wants surgery, is fit for it and wants to take that risk, we do that for oligometastatic disease all the time. And in fact, our radiation oncologists often will ask for that patient where it's gonna be a large field and maybe hard to fit it all in. They'll ask, let's give them a course of systemic C and restage. But it's a different, different mode of thinking there. I think you're, you're gonna restage and it's a decision tree with the team to say, Okay, well based on the response, are we now in a, in a good position to operate or is it better to consolidate with radiation and, and it's sort of an open decision with the patient? I, I, I think trying to make a determination at first presentation for that patient is, is not good, but the idea of starting with systemic I think is, is a great way to go. For, for, for both, whether you're going to go to RT or, or, or uh, surgery. And sometimes we'll restage after the second cycle in that setting. you like, oh, look, this is maybe there's an open win- window to, to offer an operation. Patients fit. And we do it. Uh, uh, John- Last question and Chris is going to change the. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, uh,
5: Jonathan, and you, you mentioned on stage two, your uh, preference is now neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, what do you do with the EJFR positive patients? And uh, what would what, your algorithm be there?
1: Yeah, well, I think that we don't have great data there, right? So um, we tend to do upfront surgery for the most part in those. There have been a few settings where we've given uh, off-label preoperative TKI, but um, the upside is, is, is really marginal. I, I think when we've given in preoperative TKI outside of a, a trial setting, is if we thought that uh, we could downgrade the operation, you know, make an open surgery, a m- invasive, or uh, take a stage three down to something that's, you know, more contained. Uh, do you guys have a similar approach? Or?
2: Did he ask N2 disease in EGFR positive no, stage?
1: Stage two EGFR positive. Stage two EGFR positive?
2: Yeah. Oh, definitely surgery. I mean, the Adora data is—it's—is that what he was talking about? Yeah, yeah right. I mean, the Adora data. I think that one is the—the. The, in fact, I'm actually very in favor of N2 disease. I mean, if I have a right upper lobectomy, a uh, right upper lobe cancer with station four positive, and the patient is EGFR positive. And he qualifies for the Adara trial. I mean, this patient should, be, should go under, uh, we've discussed this before, right? Yeah, Upfront yes. surgery and then osermet uh post-op. So no, no chemo uh, by itself. I mean, we uh, have the new Adara open now. Uh, Dana-Farber has it open. And I think we're trying to include patients in that trial. But uh, I think they're struggling. That's what I hear, to include those patients. What do you think?
3: I mean, I, I love new, the the concept of Neodora, and, uh, you know, I'm very excited to to hopefully recruit patients to that. Um, we have taken a few patients now for upfront surgery, and the issue with that is we have had some surprises, you know, bad surprises, sometimes intra-op, finding either pleural disease or really more extensive adenopathy than, than what you thought. Oftentimes, it's, I think our, our staging is not very... Um, are reliable for these patients and then you know what do you do from there and usually just kind of abort the procedure so um i think you know if you catch them and if if you think you catch them early then for sure uh, uh, up front if you can get them onto neodora you know hopefully that will help us get better outcomes in these patients but i think it's a very difficult um patient population and and i hope that that trial will give us some promising results yeah
1: I agree. We had um, a great presentation in the earlier session on ALK inhibitors uh, for these patients. We've done that. Uh, we've done it a few times for ROS patients. So it's a moving field. And, uh, anyways, thank you everyone for, uh, for your attendance and participation. And I think we're on to the plenary now.
0: Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI Peer Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com/sqn860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol Myers Squibb, Genentech, a member of the Roche group, and Merck & Company Incorporated.